0: So good morning, Eastside family. We want to let our children ages three through third grade make their way in that direction for junior worship. And as they're going in that direction, I want to remind you of a very important aspect of our worship assembly. And that is our offering that we bring to God. That, that is an act of worship to Him. And so we have making it possible for you to worship God in your offering in four ways. This morning you can mail a check to our church address. You can go online to our website. And there's a little box there. Click on Give and follow the easy instructions. You can give through an automatic draft through your bank. Or if you're with us in person today, you can drop your offering off in the box there on the table on your way out. And if you're not with us in person... You're still with us and we're so delighted and so humbled and so honored to have those of you who were with us live streaming this morning. It means so much to us that you took time to be with us this morning. You know, church, central to our, to our theme of making disciples of all nations, at the core of that is, is discipling our children in our church family. So that's why, hopefully, you've noticed that a huge emphasis here in our Side family is, is, is discipling our children. It's our children's ministry. It is our student ministry. We're so thankful for, the, for Laureen and for Taylor and for, for Kevin and for all the volunteers who work to raise up disciples of Jesus among our young people. But a, a really pivotal time for our young people is when they leave here. And when they leave home, it's incredibly important that they leave with their own faith and they find a place where they can be deeply rooted and where they can continue to grow. Well, this morning we are, we are delighted to have as our guest speaker someone whose life is devoted to ministering to these young people in this, in this really crucial time. After they've left home, after they left their home churches and, and they left high school, Doctor Mike Williams is is with us today. He is the new president of Harding University, and Harding University this is it's a ministry. It's a ministry devoted to. Well, I'll just read to you their mission that I found on on their website. It's a Christian university with a mission to support and challenge students to realize their full potential through providing a quality education that will lead to an understanding and philosophy of life consistent with Christian ideals. That's where Mike serves in ministry. Don't let the the title president fool you. He is a minister of Christ serving in a very overwhelming responsibility there. Helping young people come to know Christ and be positioned for this world to be a light in the world. And so, I, you noticed all the people that we're reading today are graduates from Harding. It's because we have our speaker from Harding today. I can just tell you as a graduate from Harding, and there are a lot of other alumni here from Harding, or those of you who are alumni from other Christian universities, the incredible difference it made in the impact it's not the only place where you can grow and mature, but boy, as, as, a, as a juvenile delinquent given a second chance on life, Harding was a place where I found God and where people hooked on to me, and, and I'm still using the tools and the, the education that God gave me there. It's a, it's a wonderful place. And so when, when we found out that Mike's going to be in town, we thought, well, wow what it would be wonderful if, if we could get him to to come and to speak to us today basically for the purpose of you all becoming acquainted not necessarily only with mike but also with this ministry of Harding University and having mike speak today has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that i just came back from vacation on friday night and was supposed to preach today but i walked in and jenna who was one of our graders she says you look so Rested, Eddie. And the reason I look so rested is Mike because you are preaching. And so I was able to really rest even further, not worrying about what I would teach today. Listen, Mike is here today with his wife Lisa, and they have two grown uh, children, and one of their sons is married. And so we are delighted to have them here. I want to ask you to join me in welcoming in this morning Mike Williams.
1: Good morning. Good morning, Eastside. Please don't clap. I've been president for three weeks. I haven't done anything yet. (laughs) Uh, What a blessing it's already been to be here today. Matt and the praise team, thank you for ushering us through a time of praise and worship. And I told Matt uh, just a, a moment ago, he should have given Lisa and I the heads up on the readings to be just to be, have our feet washed this morning by my fellow bisons as they proclaim the name of the Lord and read from his holy text. Uh, I thought they were going to have to come back and mop us up there for a moment, but it's, it's really good to be here. Eddie, uh, one of the things, he, they pay me to work there. They probably could get away with not doing it. For 37 years, I've worked in a Christian university, and I run to work every day. It's a blessing because I believe we do intersect with talented young men and women gifted by the Holy Spirit at one of the most critical stages of their life. In fact, my opinion would be, and it just grows more resolute every year, is that the decision of where you go after high school ranks right up there with the two biggest decisions a person makes in their life, the first obviously being a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, the second of who they might marry. After that, that decision of where they go after high school is absolutely pivotal. Because regardless of where you go, the 4,000 colleges in America, you take the contents of your life, you take the contents of what you're taught at this church, and you dump it out. So we're engaged in walking beside young men and women at a consequential moment as they really sort it out again. And so it's a blessing. Today's not going to be an infomercial about Harding, trust me. Uh, But you have to know that my life has been so influenced by the opportunity to walk beside this emerging generation that it does shape my thinking as far as how does God's people Get called into this uh, culture and with a relevant message of Jesus Christ and make an impact. Each year, my favorite day at church is Senior Sunday. I don't know if y'all do that here, where you bring the seniors up front and give them a blessing and a Bible. I still remember my little home church in Central Ohio, where they brought me for. I still have the Bible, the blessing from the church. It's it's an emotional moment for me, when even when I go to a church and I don't even know the seniors, I just sit there and recognize the, the magnitude of the moment. I'm back there blubbering and crying, and I don't know anybody up there, but I can confess to you the last five, six, seven, ten years that it is a mixed emotional day when I see senior or I experience senior Sunday, because although we're bringing them and bringing a blessing, I realize that if 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 that church fits the norm that ceremonially, for seven of them, that may be the last time they worship amongst. A body of believers, at least for a while. That's got the people of Christ scrambling in every religious tribe in America. And if it's 70% that are walking out the door, that means it's not just the people in the fringe of the youth group. This is the people that are deeply involved in missions, deeply involved in the youth group. You know, they went to Winterfest, they went to Camp, they went to all kinds of things. 70% is a pretty deep dive to think that they're bolting. Church leaders are scrambling. Most churches are fixated on Sunday morning assembly. And a lot of churches have wonderful worship ministers like Matt who do fabulous jobs of helping us contemplate our salvation and the Christian calling. And yet, despite some really robust worship assemblies, the exodus continues. And so, ministers and theologians all over the country are scrambling, putting together sermons, they're writing articles, they're speaking at large engagements of believers, and focusing on the attributes and the blessings of the church. Recently, with the anxiety surrounding the pandemic, most believe that one third of our members in every religious tribe may not come back. Researchers who are talking to the people who leave uh, say the recurring theme is that the church is no longer relevant. You've heard the story that's it's okay to be spiritual but not really religious to be a disciple but yet church is an archaic kind of thing I read a publication recently that really just dedicated all the articles within the publication about the value and the calling of the church Jesus Christ and every article I agreed with every part of it every article outlined one attribute of the church that I thought was important but one of the things that there was one portion of the Christian calling that I think was absent from this publication and absent from the conversation amongst believers because a lot of believers, as they look, it's a, it's a very insular um, analysis. All the emphasis is on the assembly, doctrine, and Christian community. Three things that I deeply value. But absent from the discussion seems to be the impact of the church on the world. It's been interesting to me over the last 37 years that I've worked with a lot of talented uh, Christian students at the Christian colleges. And one recurring conversation that I've had a number of times is uh, to meet with a talented young man or young woman and they say, my greatest goal was to start a nonprofit." They're they're compelled by the brokenness of the world. And they see challenges and broken humanity and they want to be a part of the solution. They're burdened by it. But why would a Christian start a nonprofit? Now I have nothing against nonprofits. I just moved from Montgomery, Alabama, where I was the campaign chair for the United Way campaign. We raised four million dollars for redemptive good. Work in the community to run towards brokenness. I'm not anti nonprofit. In fact, here in Colorado Springs, you have some of the most fabulous nonprofits in the world. But what provokes a student to say, I think I want to start a nonprofit? Could it be that they no longer view the church as God's vehicle for the redemption of all things? Are they tired of waiting on us? The main role of the church is to equip the saints for ministry. If the church is going to reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ, we need to be internally focused. As Eddie reminded, it's about growing disciples among us. But it has to be an external focus as well. Jesus spent time with the disciples preparing them for a time in which he would leave and not be with them, but the majority of the New Testament chronicles his work with those outside the twelve. Has the church become a building? Has it become an event? Is it no longer a movement? No longer a revolution? The church is supposed to be the proof of the gospel. You know this verse, John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our default interpretation of this verse is it's, it's love between us. That's what catches the eyes of everybody, as they see us loving one another, and that is somehow broadcasting to the whole world that we are his disciples. However, when you look at the lifestyle of Jesus Christ, it would suggest that his love is not restricted to the saints. It doesn't capture anybody's attention if I love my wife, if I love my sons and my daughter-in-law. That captures nobody's attention. It it doesn't capture anybody's attention if I love the people I go to church with. Gangs do that. The mafia does that. Nobody thinks that's extraordinary. Jesus didn't cause a stir because he loved his disciples. He caused a stir that captured the attention when that love was extended to a Samaritan woman. That invitation to the tax collector, that touch of a leper, that's what caught people's attention and said, "Uh uh-oh, what just happened? That's the love that I think is really uh, what's happening in John 13. It was reckless, it was unconstrained, it was a tidal wave of love, mercy, and compassion. I think it's really extremely intriguing to think about the impact of the first century church Our New Testament kind of really gives us a five-decade window into the infant movement, but sometimes historians tell us more about what was happening in first century Israel and first century Roman culture. Dr. James Kennedy, a scholar, said life was expendable prior to Christianity's influence. Abandonment was commonplace. It was common for infirmed babies, unwanted little ones to be taken out to the forest on the mountainside to be consumed by wild animals or to let them starve. It was especially true of female babies because women were considered inferior. Gladiator contest, sexual promiscuity, the marginalization of women, first century Israel was a disaster. If we think 2022 in America is crazy first-century Israel, first-century Roman culture makes this look tame. And yet, this small little band of Christians had a completely different worldview. They had a drastically different view of human life. They cared about the sick. They cared about the disabled. They cared about the elderly. They cared about the marginalized. It was Christians prompted by their faith that launched the first hospitals, in the first orphanages. It was the influence of the church that elevated women. And they had this good Samaritan ethic that propelled them to benevolence and charity. And their influence even extended into the court system and the thoughts of justice. In essence, the church transformed the Roman Empire. And the growth of Christian thought and practice was the catalyst for one of the most important reforms in the moral history of mankind. I think to better understand the impact of the church, we have to look, in, it's enlightening to look at some of the demographical data of that time period. It's believed in first, the first century, the world's population was about 200 million. Now to put that in context, we have about 330 million uh, people in, in the United States. And so 200 million is a lot, but it's, it's a really a small piece compared to the world's population today. But 200 million... That's still a lot of folks. What do we know from the Bible about this early revolution caused by Jesus Christ? But just the numbers. Well, we know that there was 12 disciples that were called. We know that there were about 70 disciples sent out in Luke chapter 10. And we know in the day of Pentecost that there was 3,000 that committed their lives to Jesus Christ. That's it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the demographical data from the Bible. That's all we know. Small little group. Some historians believe that there are only 100 churches in A.D. 100. Dr. Rodney Stark, a scholar from Baylor, believes from his research, he would suggest that there are only 40,000 Christians in A.D. 150. He would say that by A.D. 200, he thinks it's about 218,000. And by A.D. 250, his research would suggest that there were 1.2 million believers in Jesus Christ. By the third century, the Roman emperor, Constantine, converts to Christianity. Now regardless of what you think about Constantine, he ended exposure. He ended that practice where we take unwanted babies and especially unwanted women or little girls to the trash heap. He said that's not going to happen anymore. From Constantine on, we see Christianity making profound differences all over the world. The abolition of slavery. William, William Wilberforce, the British Evangelical, led the abolition movement in, in, in Europe. Two-thirds of the American abolitionist society were Christian ministers. Higher education, the place where I work. Every European university, every was started on Christian principles. Here in the United States, we think of Harding University as being maybe a few Christ centered universities across the land, maybe 150 of us, 200. But in America, at the starting of America, only one out of the top, or the first 123 colleges in America was a Christian place, a place of Christian thought and scholarship. The only one that wasn't was my alma mater the University of Pennsylvania, started by Benjamin Franklin, not exactly a secular humanist. Christianity has influenced every facet of life. Let's look at the ministry of Jesus Christ for a few minutes, and maybe that gives us some insight to how we might respond in a collapsing culture, in a culture that more resembles first century Israel. Do you remember the miracles, how the miracles were displayed for you in Sunday school when you were young? It's like Jesus Christ was subhuman or superhuman. I mean, it was just a miracle every moment. That's what you got. I get this impression that everywhere he went, he was feeding people, healing people, raising people from the dead. That's what he did. As I got older, I realized that most of these miracles were performed in obscurity, and they were asked, shh. Don't tell anybody. In fact, there's only three dozen miracles that were recorded in Scripture. And and really, they played a very minor role in his ministry. And miracles over the course of human history, even in the Old Testament, miracles rarely produced faith. So what was the purpose of the miracles? Was it just to show Jesus Christ's divine power from God? For him to flex and say, I'm bowing up, so you better listen to me. Is that the purpose? In reality, there's no lasting significance to any of the miracles except the resurrection. That's the only miracle that had lasting significance because there were people that were healed, and they got sick again. That there were people that were fed, and four hours later, their stomach grumbled again that some were raised from the dead, and yet they died again. Let's look at just a quick review of the miracles and see if it speaks to anything that might suggest a pathway for us. What about the first miracle when Jesus turned the water into grape juice? <laughs> all right, you're awake. Thank you. Thank you. That was all that was. It was a you know, shameless stunt to see if anybody's awake. The wedding feast, they're running out of wine. It's an embarrassing moment. It's one of the strangest of all the miracles because when you read the Messianic prophecy, it says he's going to come and free the captives. He's going to lead the people of God and he's going to restore Israel. There is no mention of interventions for social faux pas. His mother asked Jesus, he said, why do you involve me? This is not my time. She's saying, please, you got to do something. Was Jesus an opportunist that thought, all right, now this is a really strange moment. A lot of tension here. What a great moment to announce my kingdom and flex my divine power and show the world who I really am. I don't think so. I think it's about compassion. I think it's about love for a young couple on their most important day and a most embarrassing moment. John chapter 9 devotes the whole chapter to the healing of the blind, ma- blind man. Was that, again, another example of him flexing divine power? Or was it just him showing how he feels about sick and disabled folks among us? Healing of the leper, that is a really interesting one. Talk, Dr. Paul Brand, a leprosy specialist, said leprosy does not hurt. There's no pain, there's no discomfort, and yet there's tremendous suffering. Levitical law required lepers to live outside the city to kip, keep six feet away from other people and to, for no one to touch them. It's the first example of social distancing we've ever seen. Mother Teresa said that being a leper was the disease of being unwanted in her work in India. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all discussed this healing of the leper and they all make this explosive sentence. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. The creator of all things, the one who spoke the universe into existence, chooses to heal him by touch. I believe there's a whole lot more going on there than just flexing of divine power, but it's showing God's mercy, compassion, compassion. He was trying to communicate something much more than divinity. The raising, the last miracle, the raising of Lazarus, probably the most compelling miracle of them all. You sense this great emotion as he weeps and his love for the people. No lasting significance though. Lazarus died again. My son, when he was at Harding, he went and did study abroad in Greece, and he called us one day, and he said, Dad, I was at the second tomb of Lazarus, and it took me a minute. I was like, you know, all of humans, you know, what do we fear the most? We fear death. Lazarus got to do it twice. You know, who signed him up for this? These miracles, they rarely produce faith. They're not promises that God will always relieve us of pain or disease or death, but they are tremendous outcries from the Savior to say your life has to be about compassion, has to be about love, about ministry. An intriguing text, John chapter 14, verses 11 through 14. Greater works, he's talking about the the miracles. He says, believe in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the miracles. He does recognize that these miracles do show his divine power. But he says, verily, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works that I have been doing, but they'll do even greater things than these. And what in the world is he trying to say there? In the context of miracles, he said, those of us who believe we'll be able to do even greater works than these. I believe it's reminding us the power of love, the power of mercy, the power of compassion is far greater than the power to raise from the dead. That's true miraculous power. The history of Churches of Christ in America traces its roots back To the American restoration movement. Leaders were trying to attempt to use the Bible as their guide and restore a first century pattern. But today, when the term restoration movement is used, it's code language. It's code language for what some have constructed to believe first century worship, church governance. Or doctrine. I believe it's time for a new restoration movement. A restoration movement that still has a commitment to the holy text. That lets God speak to us. And gives us a pathway for his ministry. But this new movement needs to be a revolution. We need to restore first century love and mercy. We need to start a revolution of compassion. We need to revive the apostolic teaching on generosity. We need to reawaken our commitment to run towards broken humanity. The church is going to be relevant in this new age. We need to accept this calling. One of the reasons why I love working with this emerging generation because they have grabbed me by the face mask and they are calling me and reawakening me to the holy calling of God to restore what God chooses to restore. They may be bolting out these doors but they are calling us to walk out the doors of the building with them in the ministry of Jesus Christ and we don't need to start a nonprofit to do it. God envisioned the body of Christ as being his redemptive force in the world. The church was launched in the midst of a barbaric, pagan, Roman culture and a small revolution was started with 12 disciples called by the Messiah that were the ages of the Harding students. They had no political currency and no political capital And yet, gifted by the Holy Spirit, 12 college students changed the course of humanity because they followed the teachings of Jesus Christ. There's a great text in Joshua 3 that I'll close with today. Ready to go into Jericho and engage in the battle, emboldened with the power of God, Joshua said, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord's going to do amazing things. And I think he's calling the church today that in the midst of a pagan culture, in the midst of a collapsing culture, he's calling the God, he said, consecrate yourselves. He's calling us to do something absolutely amazing. Let's repent. Let's repent before the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been too insular and too fixated on the 60 minutes that we've just experienced. He's calling us to go. He's sending us to be about the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to sing with the priest team and he's calling us, all of us, to give our hearts afresh to Jesus Christ and engage in his redemptive work. This church is equipped with ministry staff and shepherds that I know will field your request. And so if you have a need, bring it forward to the body of Christ and let us walk with you in the struggles of life.
0: Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.